Hello. Our behaviour is driven by three sets of imperatives, each reflecting an intrinsic motivation. We do what we're told. We do what we think is right, given who we think we are. And we do what we want. Policies, strategies, organisations are most likely to succeed when they can align these motivations something which is hard because in many ways they push against each other. Now, that in a nutshell is my view of people in society. If you want the longer version, there are some blog posts hidden away on the RSA website. But given my theory, I was fascinated to read first a flattering extended review of a new book about rules and then gloriously the book itself. It's a wonderful, eclectic, wide-ranging book. It takes us from the origins of mathematics to the evolution of recipes to generally unsuccessful attempts to regulate the clothes people wear. And of course, as a leader, and this podcast is kind of directed to leaders or people interested in leadership, one's always being tempted to make more rules. Perhaps understanding their nature, their history, their contradictions might make us better decision makers. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Lorraine Daston, who is amongst other things, Director Emerita of the Max Planck Institute for the History of science. Lorraine, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for that warm welcome. There's so much to talk about, but let's start with a kind of core idea in the book. The book is Rules, A Short History of What We Live By. And this is the distinction between thin rules and thick rules. Tell us what you mean by that distinction between thin and thick rules. It's probably easiest to explain it on hand from a couple of examples. Let's take thin rules first, because they're the ones that in our society are probably the most familiar. These are rules which are usually short, framed in the imperative, and which foresee no extenuating circumstances. So, for example, stop at a red light. A thick rule is one which is formulated in anticipation of many unforeseen eventualities. It includes not only the articulation of the rule itself, for example, don't eat for two hours before bedtime or something like this, along with, in the next breath, a cascade of possible exceptions, unless a guest should come knocking at your door, at a late hour, possible tweaking that might be required. Well, perhaps a piece of fruit would be all right within the two-hour window. And many, many examples of what, for example, your two-hour-before-bedtime dinner might consist of. This is a thick rule, which is upholstered sort of like the Michelin Man, with all kinds of pneumatic cushions against blows of unforeseen circumstances, hard cases that no one could possibly have anticipated. The thick rules are for a world of surprises, a world of high variability, 
and heterogeneity in which things are not standardized. And the thin rules assume a uniform world, a predictable world, a world which is homogeneous. And you give the example of the rules of St. Benedict. This is early on in the book, which is a set of rules which if you didn't know much about it and you just kind of saw the headlines, you would think, well, this is a very kind of tightly defined prescriptive set of instructions for people who are part of the Benedictine community. But as you explain in the book, in fact, they have this characteristic of thickness. Yes. So the rule of St. Benedict, it's actually in the singular in the title, the entire document is called The Rule, consists of 73 chapters or precepts, and they are extremely detailed. So they tell you when the monks are supposed to get up in the morning, when they're supposed to go to sleep, when they are supposed to sing various psalms and vespers, what they are allowed to eat, one pound of bread per day, exactly one hamina, which is about a quarter of a liter of wine per day, what will be their main meal. They are not allowed to speak during meals. The only person who is allowed to speak is a monk who is reading from passages from the Bible, not the Book of Kings because it's too exciting for monks of weak character. What they wear, how many pillows they have, and on and on and on. So it's highly detailed. And what distinguishes it from a handbook of the sort that we're all too familiar with of that micromanaging kind is that in the next breath, there is always an exception. So there will be silence at meals unless a guest arrives and the abbot wills that the guest should have a conversation partner at dinner. The monks are allowed no personal possessions, none whatsoever, unless the abbot, for good reason, thinks that it might be useful in a certain case. The monks are allowed only one hemina, the quarter liter of wine per day, unless they have been laboring on a hot summer's day under a cloudless, sunny sky, in which case they might be allowed a bit more. And on and on and on it goes. There is no precept so ironclad that it cannot be tweaked, adjusted, bent, or suspended altogether according to the good judgment of the abbot. In the Latin, it's called his discretio, his power of discerning cases. So that's an example of a thick rule and one which has proved extraordinarily resilient. This is a rule which was formulated sometime in the 5th or 6th century AD, and it is still basically the one which governs Benedictine monasteries, not only through the centuries intervening, but any time now, whether in Arizona or southern France or in Monte Cassino, the original Benedictine monastery, because of its ability to adapt, its suppleness in adapting to circumstances. So one of the many wonderful things about your book, Lorraine, is that I would read something like this description of the St. Benedict rule and it would send me off in a particular way of thinking and I have to put the book down to reflect on it. And so I remember when I read that bit, it occurred to me that in some senses, this is a little bit like the relationship between law and the role of a judge, which is the role of the juries to decide whether somebody is guilty or innocent of a law and the law is specific and it's up to the jury to understand the law and to understand whether somebody is guilty. But 
Then when it comes to sentencing, we give the judge the discretion to make a determination as to how, in a sense, yes, the law has been broken, and yes, somebody has been found guilty, but judgment has to come into play in terms of how bad that action is, what the appropriate punishment is. So it's almost like when you look at the law, that the law is often thin in that it does specify things in great detail without a great deal of kind of ambiguity, but we build around it this kind of thickness in terms of the degree to which judges can make judgments about how bad someone's behavior has been and what the appropriate... Is that, am I right in thinking there's a kind of parallel there? Yes, I think that captures it very accurately. And what's very interesting, I don't know whether this is the case in the United Kingdom, but in the United States recently, and this is not completely unprecedented historically, there's been an attempt to narrow the discretion of the judges. So, for example, mandatory sentencing rules for certain crimes which are considered to be particularly heinous or asocial. And this is an, a very old tendency. You can find medieval examples of this tendency on the part of monarchs trying to bind the hands of their judges. In one memorable phrase, the judge was supposed to issue sentences with an automaticity like unto the note played when you press the key of a harpsichord, for example. And it's a pendulum movement. It always occurs that such rules are introduced after what is considered to be an abuse of the judge's privilege of discretion. And then, of course, abuses of rigidity make themselves evident, and the pendulum swings back the other way. And I think that just is a statement about how difficult it is to get this balance right between thin and thick rules. Yeah. One of the other things that I happened when I was reading the book, Lorraine, was I kept thinking, ah, I see, this is this distinction. I recognize this distinction. And then I'd think, no, it isn't that distinction. So at certain times I thought, well, this is the distinction here, to go back to what I said in the in opening, is that thicker rules go with the grain of social norms. And that's what allows them to have this kind of greater kind of capacity, this openness, this sense of ambiguity, because they are reinforced by what people think is right. Whereas when you're forcing, the authorities are trying to force people to do something which people don't think makes sense. It doesn't fit their sense of social norms. That's when you have to specify things in great detail. And when I was reading your chapter about the history of sumptuary laws, attempts to control what people wear. I felt that. I felt here is this continued failure to tell people what they should and shouldn't wear, which is always going to fail because in the end, people just don't think it makes any sense. They don't think it's appropriate to be told what to wear. No, it's so true. I recently heard, I think only yesterday or the day before, that the Chinese government is going to introduce essentially sumptuary laws banning certain forms of clothing which are considered to be offensive to Chinese sensibilities, as judged by the government. And my thought was, lots of luck with that. <laughs> I, I think 500 years of abject failure of sumptuary laws in Europe have a lesson to teach there. But I do think sometimes there are thin rules which do conform to our sense of norms. So let me go back to the rather banal example of stopping at a red light. We all I think, believe that 
the regulation of traffic, especially automobile traffic, because it's potentially so dangerous, is a norm. We subscribe to that. So I don't think it's a hundred percent correlation between rules which we kick against versus those which conform to our sense of what is right. The sumptuary laws are an interesting case because if you look at the archival records when people are apprehended, for example, for wearing squirrel fur when they shouldn't be allowed to, or their sleeves are two inches too broad, or some other infringement of the local sumptuary laws, it is almost always the case that the person apprehended protests vigorously on his or her own behalf, but believes that sumptuary laws, having such a law, is not a bad thing for other people. So there is a certain selectivity about the degree to which one believes that all sumptuary laws are a bad idea, which is the conclusion to which most people came in Europe by the middle of the 18th century, versus thinking this particular law is a bad idea, especially when applied to me. Right, which kind of, again, goes back to that distinction I made at the beginning between these kind of three sets of motivations, I'll do what I'm told, I'll do what's right, and I'll do what I want. That in a sense, what people are saying was, no, these rules are fine, but not if they contradict what I want. That's a more powerful thing for me because clothes, how I look, it feels like a personal, individual thing. But there has to be some relationship, Lorraine, doesn't there, between rules and social norms? Because in in a sense, if there's a strong social norm, you don't need a rule or you certainly don't need an explicit rule. You don't need a law. You don't need something passed down by authority because people do it because they think it's the right thing to do. What do you see as the relationship between social norms and rules laid down by authority? It's a very good question. And I think that a rule which has absolutely no mooring in social norms is doomed. And I think the sumptuary laws are a very good example of that. In many of the Italian city-states of the late Middle Ages, they were enforced with considerable severity and rigor, and that did not succeed in getting people to conform. And I would wager, I hope no society has actually ever tried this, but that if perchance and counterfactually some misguided government were to suggest a way in which parents should treat their children, for example, which the parents and most parents would consider cruel, that no amount of enforcement would succeed in countering a very strongly held social norm about how parents and children should relate to one another. So that's on one side. But on the other side, there are rules which can become norms by sheer repetition. Mm. I'm thinking sort of Chinese water torture fashion in which the drop of water drops, 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 and eventually hollows out a stone. So I'm thinking here of rules about sanitation in 18th century European cities. Most 18th century European cities were filthy, smelly, crowded, dangerous places. And one reason was that the sanitation consisted of emptying the contents of your chamber pot out onto the street and any unfortunate passerby under the window. There is a concerted attempt starting in the late 17th century by cities like Amsterdam and London and Paris to make rules against this. And these rules are 
quite unsuccessful, we know by the number of infringements and the number of fines levied. But gradually, in the course of the 18th century, people begin to start conforming, and they begin to find it a abuse of social norms to carelessly dispose of your waste in the fashion that had been quite usual in earlier centuries. So that's a case in which a rule, which at first has no anchor in social norms, actually through sheer dint of stubborn persistence and perhaps a certain attitude on the part of the public concerning the dangers to health and public hygiene by the lack of enforcement of such sanitation or lack of compliance to such sanitation rules, it becomes a social norm eventually. It takes, however, about 150 years. Now, really interesting. And, you know, sometimes, Lorraine, I think this happens slowly. Generally, it happens slowly, but sometimes it happens quickly. So let me give you two examples. So I think drink driving laws are an example of it happening relatively slowly. So drink driving laws were introduced and probably have some effect, but it feels in the early years like it is something you're forced to do. And people in pubs go, oh, I better not have another pint in case the police stop me. Now, that's changed now. I think now it's the case that if you were seen to drink too much and get in your car, the main issue would not be that you might be stopped by the police and prosecuted, lose your license. The main issue would be that you're being irresponsible. So that's a shift, if I think about it, in my own lifetime that I've observed. But I was also involved in something which happened much more quickly. So I worked in Downing Street for Tony Blair, and I was involved in the decision about banning smoking in public places. And there, what had happened was there'd been a kind of growing awareness of the harms of smoking. But there was an argument, the individualistic argument. And the individualistic argument was, well, look, yes, smoking might damage your health, but it's my health. And so therefore, it's not up to you, the state, to tell me whether I should or shouldn't smoke. The thing that shifted that and shifted it pretty quickly was the evidence on passive smoking. Because that meant that suddenly that libertarian argument lost its purchase because now it was no longer simply you that would experience the consequences of smoking. You were poisoning the people. You were having to breathe your smoke in restaurants and pubs or whatever. So sometimes the kind of moral scales can shift quite quickly and that suddenly a rule which would have been very contentious becomes relatively consensual. Yes, that's a very interesting example. I've had, just by chance, the experience of witnessing two different societies make that transition with regard to non-smoking rules. The first was the United States, and it's exactly as you described for the UK. It was secondary smoke, passive smoking, which really tipped the balance. The second case is Germany, which only very reluctantly and in a very foot-dragging way, has accepted the argument about passive smoking. And I think one reason for the contrast in an otherwise very health-conscious society is that, unlike the United States, I can't speak for the United Kingdom, smoking in Germany was associated with left-wing intellectuals. <laughs> it's sort of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre smoking Gaulois at the Café Flore. So it was part of a constellation of green politics, vegetarianism, and Birkenstocks 
<laughs> so that group turned out, although they're by no means libertarians, turned out to be highly resistant to counter arguments about individual risk versus involuntary collective risk. Interesting, really interesting. So there's another distinction, which reading the book, I thought, oh, I know, I can see what it's, that's this. And again, it isn't quite your distinction between thin and thick, but it is interesting. That's the distinction between skills and knowledge. And I particularly thought about that distinction between skills and knowledge in your fascinating chapter on the evolution of cookery, of recipes, where it seemed to me that, and you'll correct me, Lorraine, and say it's not as simple as this, but in a sense that the early cookery books were about teaching skills which could be applied in a number of ways. And then as recipes evolve, they become more about a very specific set of rules to follow in order to cook a very particular meal. Now, that distinction between skills and knowledge runs through every debate about education, the debate between progressives and traditionalists, etc. So how does the kind of skills, knowledge distinction connect to your kind of core ideas? That's very interesting. I wouldn't have framed it that way, but I absolutely see why you have framed it that way. In a sense, a world of thick rules is a world which absolutely demands skills because it demands improvisation. So that knowing exactly how to bake a lemon sponge cake in a particular setting, so for example, at a particular altitude with particular ingredients, will serve you not at all if you are transplanted to another locale with different ingredients. And I speak from experience as somebody who has had to learn to cook anew in several different countries. And that's a question where skills are absolutely essential as a complement to knowledge. If you're living, once again, in a world that is made safe for thin rules in which you have standardized weights and measures, you have standardized ingredients which are regulated, and you have a standardized vocabulary for procedures like how you fold egg whites into batter. In that situation, you can get by almost entirely with knowledge rather than with skill, never entirely, but the balance tips in favor of knowledge. The more variety there is in your environment, the more you must adjust to changing circumstances, the more skills will have the upper hand. I kind of puzzled with this. And also you've said, Lorraine, earlier in our conversation that thicker rules are associated with uncertainty, unpredictability. But generally people say, but the world now, they talk about a VUCA world, don't they? they say the world now is more volatile, unpredictable, chaotic than it's ever been before. And I wonder whether the critical issue here is control is that in a sense, we live in a world where we believe that we can and we seek to control much more than people felt before enlightenment, industrialization or whatever kind of watershed we want to focus on. Is that the critical thing is that thin rules are associated with a world which seeks both seeks to and believes that everything can be controlled? I think control is a powerful opiate and that all cultures have tried to have as much control as they possibly could. Nothing else would explain the long career of astrology, given the fact that everyone knew that its predictions were highly unreliable. You had to have some way of predicting the future, some illusion of control. The same might be said these days about economic forecasting. I think what's really interesting 
is the degree to which people believed control was possible and how this became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I mentioned sanitation in the 17th and 18th centuries in certain European metropolises. And what you begin to see during this period is an absolute explosion of rules and regulations, especially in these densely populated urban centers. These are, of course, necessary if you have a high density of people living together to regulate their behavior to avoid mayhem, but it also creates a kind of mania on the part of the people charged with making and enforcing these rules for ever more order. The Paris police are almost a caricature of this phenomenon in which they issue more and more regulations. They are completely unfazed by the fact that these regulations must be issued 10 times, 12 times, 17 times, for example, no playing ball in the streets or clearing off the snow when it snows from the sidewalks and the like. They simply insist upon them. And it's very interesting to me that no one is satisfied with the amount of control they have. Instead, the more control they have, the more they long for. I once was working on the history of insurance, and it was striking to me the society which buys the most insurance per capita is Switzerland, <laughs> which is perhaps one of the most secure and predictable societies known to human history. Fascinating. Now, let's turn to an another aspect of the book, which I think is, in a sense, if there is in your book a sense of kind of particular topicality to it, I mean, I found all of it incredibly relevant to all sorts of things, but it's around algorithms, around AI, or I think actually in the context of your book, the more accurate term that people use for AI as it currently is, which is machine learning, is actually more relevant in a sense. So I felt that in a way your book is partly driven by this sense that we now have technology, which if we could give it all the rules, if it understood, if it had enough rules, in a sense, everything could be resolved and it could match human ingenuity. And you're really interested in the concept of algorithm, where the idea of algorithm comes from. And you want to, I think, argue, and I found this bit of the book fascinating, but I think it's the bit of the book that I, there were moments when I, I lost my way a bit, was you want to kind of say, look, even in the history of mathematics, the rules have not always been thin. They have been thicker. And so this kind of idea now that where mathematics has taken us is the possibility of being able to write as it were, the kind of uber book of rules, the book of rules of everything, which will ultimately lead to computers taking over the world. You, you want to chip away at that notion, I think. Yes. I should preface this by saying that I am not an expert in AI or machine learning. So what I am about to say is basically a layperson's understanding. From a historical point of view, algorithms were simply Rules of calculation, indeed, the original algorithms were just the basic operations of arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And I think it will still be a familiar experience to most people, at least of my generation, who were taught arithmetic in school and even algebra, that one is taught by lots and lots of examples. So that's an example of algorithms, for example, how to 
manually, no one does this anymore, I realize, I date myself, how to manually extract a square root. There's an algorithm for doing this, but what you do is lots and lots, you practice lots and lots of examples doing this with the square roots. I think this form of learning mathematics by example has almost completely disappeared with the proliferation of calculators available to everyone on their phones. But it shows how this very long tradition of algorithms also, to some extent, being taught by models, by thick rules, by examples, persisted since ancient times until really until the 1970s, when the first calculators really began to be used widely. With regard to AI, there seems to me to be a real distinction between what is sometimes called classical AI, which is indeed an attempt to create a set of rules, and in classical AI, as elegant and streamlined a set of rules as possible, from which you can then generate a maximum number of phenomena. And here I think the implicit, sometimes the explicit model, is something like Euclidean geometry, in which you have a very small number of axioms, postulates, and definitions, from which you generate many, many, many theorems. Machine learning is very different and could only have become possible because of the enormous gains in calculating power and speed, which is instead of formulating rules, you let the program learn through trial and error by feeding it gazillions of examples, many, 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 many examples. And what's intriguing to me as a historian of rules is that no one can explain exactly how machine learning programs do what they do. And in fact, there is the very disconcerting fact that two identical computers programmed identically, given the same examples, but perhaps not in the same order, may actually diverge with regard to their results. But what this does basically is to return the machines to learning from examples. And the main difference between the way the machine learns from examples and we learn from examples is that we need far fewer of them to learn. So a child, a small child, say three years old, will learn what a giraffe is from maybe four or five examples. After that, the kid has got giraffe. The giraffe can be a picture in a children's book. It can be a giraffe in the zoo. It can be a cartoon of the giraffe. The child has giraffe. It takes tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of examples of giraffes for a machine learning program to have the same sureness of identification. So however it is learning, it is not learning the way we do. I could spend hours just discussing that. It's a fascinating thought. But I'm going to end by drawing you back to another distinction. And this is actually one of my favorite, I'm a sociologist by background, it's one of my favorite distinctions. And also linking it a bit, and I'm not asking you because this is not your area of expertise, I know, but this podcast is for people who lead or people who are interested in leadership. So I'm kind of interested a little bit in whether you've got any advice for leaders given the studies that you've undertaken. So this is the distinction that Max Weber I think Weber gets one mention in your book that Max Weber makes between substantive and procedural rationality, in which Weber says that substantive rationality is a rationality of ends. So it's rationality in pursuit of what it is we are ultimately trying to achieve, an organization is ultimately trying to achieve. And procedural rationality is rationality in relation to rules. 
And what Weber says, and of course, Weber is one of the first people to identify bureaucracy, to talk about bureaucracy. And, and Weber is ambivalent about bureaucracy. He sees bureaucracy as inevitable, in some ways, a necessary part of modernity. But he's also aware of the kind of tragedies of bureaucracy. And Weber says that it is an inevitable characteristic of bureaucracies that procedural rationality drives out substantive rationality. And anybody who's ever run an organization knows this to be the case. And that in a sense, the kind of endless processes of having new strategies is in a way the kind of recognition that look, we had a strategy and that strategy was based on a conversation about our substantive goals, but it's now become clogged up with procedural rationality, the kind of rule-based rationality, everyone's now forgotten. So we have to have another strategic refresh to remind ourselves of what we're really trying to do. I think it's a wonderful idea. I use it all the time. I try to even use it to guide my own leadership practice. I'm interested, Lorraine, in whether you recognize that Weberian distinction in your own thinking. And what can leaders do to avoid the trap that Weber describes? I do recognize it. I am living in Berlin, the heart of Prussia, which of course was Max Weber's own paradigm for a rational bureaucracy. And I wonder sometimes whether we aren't talking about not bureaucracy too cool, bureaucracies everywhere and always, but bureaucracies in a particular kind of political situation. So I'm a historian of early modern science, and to some extent that takes me into territory of bureaucracies, for example, the enforcement of regulations for mining in the 16th and 17th century. And what really strikes me is how much discretion bureaucrats have within, say, the cameraless system in the German principalities of that time. And I'm also within the French bureaucracy, even under Louis XIV. What strikes me as really different, and what I think Weber describes beautifully in a democracy is that the procedural bureaucracy, what he calls in German Zweckrationalität, is in some ways a response to the demand that everybody be treated equally. Mm. Equally does not necessarily mean justly. In many cases, we can all think of them, the rigid application of the same rule for everyone, the same procedure, leads to injustice. But in a democracy, there is almost a built-in distrust of unelected officials, and that, of course, is the bureaucracy charged with running and oiling the wheels of state. And therefore, there is a very strong bias in favor of procedural rationality because it minimizes, or appears to minimize at least, discretion. So I think this might be very specific to a certain kind of political constellation. Again, Lorraine, there's so many directions that we could go off there. We could talk about the distinction between equality and equity. We could talk about the fact that the bane of progressives, I mean, I've knocked on lots of doors canvassing for the Labour Party, and you you say to people, well, the, you know, the issue is inequality in society. And they'll say, no, no, that's not the issue. The issue is someone who lives four doors down who's cheating on their benefits, that, <laughs> that in a sense, they care more about procedural infringements than about substantive. This has been a great conversation, Lorraine. Your book rules a short history of what we live by. It's a, it's a wonderful read. I'm so grateful to you for writing it and so grateful to you for joining me on Forward Vision. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Lorraine's book is full of great examples of the history of rules. But when I think about 
the way rules and regulations proliferate, I always go back to the same image. It's from a truly wonderful film, What's Up, Doc? In fact, my perfect day might be rereading Lorraine's book in the afternoon and re-watching What's Up, Doc? in the evening. And actually, there's another link to thin and thick thinking. What's Up, Doc? is a very loose homage to another wonderful film, Bringing Up Baby. It seizes the essence of that film, but unlike conventional remakes, thin remakes, it doesn't actually copy anything. Anyway, at the end of the film, a completely frazzled judge is presiding over a chaotic court and he grabs a bottle of pills. And someone says to him, Judge, what's that blue pill for? The judge replies, well, it's to counteract the side effects of the yellow pill. But what is the yellow pill for, he's asked. Do you know what he says? I really can't remember. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.